At its 2013 Emerging Artists Symposium on Musicals on May 20th, internationally acclaimed director-choreographers Chet Walker and Marsha Milgram Dodge shared their expertise of applying a fresh perspective to the revival of a musical subsequent to an iconic production. Hi, I'm SDCF Producing Director Ellen Rusconi, and you are listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the American Theatre Wing. We're here with Marsha Milgram Dodge and Chet Walker. So in the room we all have our have your bios in front of us, but if you could give us a sense of your career in your own words for those of us here and also for those of us listening on the podcast in the future. Uh, started dancing when I was a little kid in Detroit, went to the University of Michigan, started choreographing stuff, did not cast Madonna in The Music Man. <laughs> Donna Louise Ciccone came to New York with my then boyfriend, now husband, and uh, started working in uh, dinner theater, summer stock, and then got a regional theater job at the uh, arena stage, I would think would be my life-changing opportunity. I did a production of On the Town there in 1989, and uh, from there began my life as the queen of the regionals, which is my self-proclaimed title. <laughs> After 30 years in the regions, did an uh, amazing uh, production of Ragtime at the Kennedy Center and got my Broadway. You were the first woman to first direct? First woman hired by the Kennedy Center to direct wow. and choreograph a musical. Congratulations. In 2009. <laughs> Something not right with that, but I'll take it. I didn't even know until I was told after that. Because I had worked there before as a choreographer and as a director, but not hired by the Kennedy Center. Uh, oh, as, as a, a as presenting, presenting house. Yeah, yeah. But there's two, there are two different things. The Kennedy Center being our national theater. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, I started when I was five. I got my first job when I was nine. I got my first Broadway show when I was 16. My mother was a dancer. That's why I'm here. Um, I did eight Broadway shows. Um, I had my own television series. Got fired from it. <laughs> Lots of TV commercials. Um, I met Bob Fosse when I was a, a wee lad. And I uh, was with him from about 19 years old until five minutes before he passed away. Um, my life changed in the show that I'm doing right now, 41 years ago, uh, Pippin. Um, most people think it's a chorus line that started us all out with singing and dancing and acting, but in fact it was Pippin. There were only 17 of us. Um, we had no microphones. A full 23-piece orchestra at the Imperial Theater, and everyone heard everything we said. <laughs> it is only when uh, Mr. Fossey passed away did I my life change in that that my mother told me I was one of the stupidest persons she had ever met because all the information that he had given me I wasn't doing anything with. Uh, thanks. And... Um, I had already started what would be known as Fosse with Mr. Fosse, and it was a television show for him, having everyone come and say thank you. Uh, and he actually agreed to that. And um, so then when Fosse happened, it was a whole different story. And um, this coming back to do Pippin is like <laughs> revisiting my childhood. As I was saying to Marsha, our director, Diane Paulus, who's absolutely brilliant, she constantly keep saying, oh yeah, yeah, when I was a little girl, I saw <laughs> <laughs> But I think for 80, I look fantastic. <laughs> and we don't use the same color. Mine's <laughs> looking a little yellow. You have to so. come to Norway. This is where I get it. Uh, and they know blonde. Yeah. yeah. Oh, they do or blonde. Denmark, Okay, so you both directed and choreographed around the country. Um, how did most of uh, how did most of that work start, and how did you build upon those early jobs? Because it's you know a lot of times people get their first job and then they're left thinking everything will follow, and it doesn't quite. Um. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm one of those, you know, I'm one of those weird people. I don't, I'm blessed or something, I don't know, or stupid, or act stupid and blessed. Um, I work all the time because yeah. I reinvent myself continuously. Um, I learned that a long time ago that agents couldn't help you. Lawyers can only get you some sort of a deal. So I kept creating, a com I created a company which is called Walker Dance, which was first called Eight and a One, but as Cy Coleman says, that's not how you spell it. Okay. <laughs> Give me some money. Um, so I, when I wasn't doing something, I'd be doing my company. I constantly did that. I, I kind of followed the path of Jekyll, and uh, not the total path of Jekyll, um, but just having a company and be able to do stuff. It's like Graziella Danielle says, you know, sometimes I have to do commercial stuff so I can do my art. And when I heard that from her, I went, yeah, I kind of dig that. So I, I work a great deal out of this country. I've created an entire network of, I could work from here until, you know, well, I was going to say until I die. That could be tomorrow. Well, but I'd still work. Um, I mean, I've just cultivated that. I have not cultivated in this country. I, not that I have anything against this country at all. I'm an American Indian, so you all kind of like messed it up. Um, but I can do my art elsewhere. I can do what I want to do, and I fail, and sometimes I do good. Um, I work for the, um, the, the U.S. government as well. Um, I got into that. Um, In what way? Purely by accident. I think my entire career was a complete accident. And I'm, I'm grateful for it being a complete accident. Um, I got a phone call, I got an email uh, from the State Department. And of course, I let that go because, you know, I've been hacked. Right. And, you know, the U.S. State Department, well, I had done my taxes, so I'm not answering that. <laughs> and that went on for about two months. And I was getting kind of nervous because, like, they're going to come to my door. And I've done my taxes. Leave me alone. And then finally I got a message from the ambassador to Serbia the American ambassador to Serbia going, we've been trying to get a hold of you for three months. And I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> and, and they said that they wanted to do a program uh, of musical theater. They said that they had, a th you know, Yugoslavia had been cut up into seven different countries. The only musical theater theater is the Tarazi, and it's in Belgrade, or Biograd. There's no L in it. Um, would you come and do a symposium? Uh, what the hell is that? It's a symposium. I, mean, I didn't know what that was, musical theater. Well, I found out. Because I made it up. Um, and then I started getting other things from the government. And it was like, that became like, what, you people, huh? Seriously? They have money. <laughs> they have money. Yeah. I'll be your best friend. Yeah, come. <laughs> they have money to um, tell people in the rest of the world who we are as people, as artists, not our politics. Because at the time that I first started going, there was a, a president that was in for eight years, and I, I had an issue with that person and I said and I'm very outspoken so World War Three might happen <laughs> and, and the lady on the other end is like really quiet and I thought man I've uh -oh. blown this one she says Chet she says do you realize what the State Department does I'm like yeah you're like out like every four or eight years okay I didn't go to school a lot <laughs> I spent most of my time at Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo so uh, she says we have nothing really to do with the political aspect of it all it's a, it's a department going out to share our values to the rest of the world because sometimes politically it becomes kind of crazy and people think of us I mean, I'm sure you all travel all over the world in those years it wasn't great to be an American I, I have been thrown up against walls and talked and talk to as if I somehow had something to do seriously a ton do I'm a you can accuse me of a Ron Duchamp, possibly, but <laughs> what that man was doing at that time, I, you know, I really wasn't, you know, I really wasn't sure of. So m my coming back into the country and working because of those connections made it easier for me to work when I want to work, which is, I know that sounds egotistical. I love going out of this country and working, working with other people to find out that we are so alike and we are not different. Mm -hmm. The only thing that's a slightly different is how they do musicals. Just no stage manager. Man, when everybody knows the knows the script, knows the lighting cues, knows when everything comes in, they kn 
literally everybody knows it. And you're like, that is never going to work. You need a PSM here going. And they go watch and you watch and you go. You know, there are no mistakes. So is nobody calling the show? Nobody calls the show. No one calls the show. The lighting guys and the light board and the sound guys. Isn't that wild? But that's what you would do as an actor. That's what you would do as a singer. That's what you would do as a dancer. You would know, you know, on the 14th count of eight, you know, this big thing's coming around, Demi Plie. You, know? you just know that. And it's, it's kind of amazing to see an entire company be really a company. And who's keeping the script and the blocking and everything in rehearsal? Me. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Yeah, they don't, that's very different. Yeah, there's not a Bible. to fly by the CDMP. See their pants, yeah. <laughs> I worked in Denmark and South Korea and the UK. But but they have stage managers in, in England. Yes, they do. But not in South Korea and Denmark. Wow, that's that's fascinating. So how do so you regionally, become the queen of regional? Well, I the title. I landed a job at, at actually Stage West in Massachusetts. Theater's gone now, but the artistic director was Gregory Boyd, and mm. at that time it was like 1986, and the Guthrie had just done Guys and Dolls. So all of a sudden they thought, oh, we should do musicals. You can do more than Chekhov and and uh, you know uh, Shakespeare and all the classics and they said oh we could actually do musicals and make some money and it could go back into the not for profit world and I landed in, in regional theater at that time so I was really lucky it was a lot of word of mouth a director calling another director um, uh, my resume landing on someone's desk the day they needed to hire a choreographer what's that you know, and you know, Baltimore Center Stage was doing "She Loves Me," and uh, my resident—I read backstage ferociously. And every time it said "choreographer TBA," I sent my resume. And I didn't have an agent, but I just got myself out there, and I met—I um, met some good people. I met Ira Weitzman, who was at Playwrights Horizons, and with my resume, you know, he got a call about a choreographer he would recommend me. So. I had a great year. 1989 was a pretty awesome year. I did On the Town at Arena Stage, Romance and Hard Times at the Public Theater, and Closer Than Ever at the Cherry Lane. Hmm. And I thought, it can't get any better. That's just it. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm done. <laughs> what will happen to me next? Yeah. You know, unemployment for a long time. So, uh, but, you know, I always say my job, my full-time job is looking for work, and when I get, when I get a job, I, I breathe and I... And I immerse myself in the show and do all my work and do everything I need to do, but I'm not thinking about what's my next job. And so it's lovely if I can have a span of six months or so where I'm like, I'm just working. Yeah. And then four months in, I start to panic. And it doesn't stop. I'm not going to lie to you. It doesn't stop. No, even, I mean, Jack O'Brien is always saying that, too. Oh, well, I don't know where my next job is going to come. Yeah. You think you're Jack O'Brien? I remember Gene Hackman on one of those actor studios saying the same thing. I'm like, you're Gene yeah. Hackman. <laughs> Get a job. Oscar, yeah. an Oscar-winning actor. What are you worried about? Right. But we worry. We're insecure. And the business is fickle. And, you know, I can go and do five shows every year at one theater, and then all of a sudden they don't call me. What did I do? And then you spend a whole like year going, what did I do? <laughs> you know? And then a year later they call you again. So, yeah. you know, so it's, and then it's think, tricky. Do you want to, to work there? Uh. <laughs> no, I mean, yes. the thing is I, I also call myself the girl that can't say no, but I try not to say yes to something if I really don't have my heart in it. I was yeah. just having a, 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 a really lively discussion with a, a frequent collaborator of mine, a designer, and and sometimes you say yes and you think, oh, I shouldn't have said yes, but it's hard to say no. Yeah. Because every experience is going to be a learning experience. And um, if I don't learn something from my project, then I feel cheated. You know, I want, I'm not the know-all, be-all, end-all. There's yeah. stuff I need to learn, too, whether it's tons of research before I begin a production of Cabaret, for example. I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on the Weimar Republic. Right. I have to study that. I have to read about it and watch things and, and you know, immerse myself in it. So if I, you know, or, or bring on a designer who comes from an aesthetic that's different than yours, so I will be inspired to mm -hmm. start thinking that way. I always like to think about 
Terry Gilliam and uh, Monty Python, how the head opens up and all that stuff flies out. Yeah. I want to be that head. I want to be that head that things are flying out of and things are flying into and just allow myself to be inspired and led by collaborators yeah. and things like that. But, but the regional stuff, you, you know, you, you hope you do a good job and they invite you back, but rarely has a theater said to me after I do a good job, what do you want to do next year? They have a planning process. It's a not-for-profit. They make their calendars a year, two, three in advance. And so they might have already committed to a whole series of directors and choreographers for the following season, for following two seasons. And you sort of leave going, well, I thought I did a good job. And you find out it has nothing to do with you. It has its planning. So. I do have to say, I do want to make one note, though, on both of you that I'm sure has helped you in your careers. I, I you know, I work with a lot of, I, I have dealings with a lot of different directors and choreographers and just people in general through this job because we have so many programs. And you two are maybe certainly in the top five of people who respond immediately and who track things really well. Like you most, both must be extremely organized people. And you guys always say yes. Always. <laughs> Which always. is great. I mean, it, and it's just something to think always. of. You know, well, I like to respond to the way I want to be responded to. So I don't want to wait three days for an answer when I think somebody can call me back or send me an email. If it's been read, you can reply. So I'm sort of like that person. Plus, I'm getting a little OCD. <laughs> so I have to take care of it now. Literally, I've had my I've told my husband just take the computer out of my hand. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Friday yeah. at six o'clock, just take it out of my hand yeah. because if it's sitting there, I'm getting on it. You know, and I will answer emails till two in the morning because yeah. I just I I don't know I I have a hard time. You're shutting lucky you it have down. a husband taking it away from you. Yeah. So it's 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 a blessing and a curse. Yeah. But, you're both but I do want to, if I, you know, if someone writes to me and takes the time to write to me, then I will respond. Yeah, it, it, it always, with both of you, it feels so respectful. I mean, it, I realize, you know, Thank you don't you. have to respond to me. It feels so respectful, though, every time, Good. every time you guys do. So well, we always I need something that. from you. That's really well, <laughs> I, no, I, I need observers. I think it's a good talk about revivals for just a little bit because that's the title of this one. <laughs> Sorry, um, not me personally. Uh, <laughs> um, because the two of you have probably done the highest profile re revivals in New York in the last, you know, 10 years where it's following one iconic production and now here's the second production. Um, and I, to me that must be, mean a lot of pressure Maybe it doesn't. Maybe that's great. Um, but also, how do you approach that? Well, I approach <laughs> it like a new musical, period. With all respect to the original production, because I am that girl of the regionals, I've done a million revivals. I've done a lot of revivals. Not on the radar. I knew Ragtime was going to be on the radar. It wasn't Broadway. It never intended to go to Broadway. It wasn't designed to go to Broadway. It was intended for the Kennedy Center in Obama's election year. And I knew that this was a big, beautiful opportunity. Called my parents, said this is as close to Broadway as you're getting. <laughs> Buy your tickets now. <laughs> Obama, I was like campaigning for Obama. I was like, he has to be in the White House. Doing a show. Doing rag time. <laughs> you Hillary but it wasn't your year so uh, but he didn't come you know and I invited the family I tried really hard he didn't come but I knew it was on the radar that was a big deal for me just the, the uh, and you know what I mean by that it was going to be seen not just by wonderful communities that I work with around the country but in a more high profile community so um, the first thing I did was go back to the novel um, and I read the novel and dog-eared pages and scribbled and highlighted and made all sorts of notes on the novel and I read it, you know, at least five times 
And then I called Edward. Do I called Lynn and Steve and Terrence and asked if I could get Edward uh, El Doctor's number. And I went and talked to him. So I went back to the novel, and I didn't call Frank Galati, and I didn't call Graziella. I had seen the original production once, and at a time when I was about to be, uh, go adopt my daughter. So when Little Cole House ran on stage, I was a goner. So that was that was my experience with Ragtime. It was the mother character just really meant a lot to me at that time. And I just knew that I had to find my way into the material in a way that spoke to an audience in, in 2009. And... Um, and I also come from a more non-literal aesthetic. So uh, Lynn and Steve had said to me, can you do it without the car and without the piano? And I was like, no. <laughs> but I can do something different. I can make it less literal. And so um, my early conversations with Derek McLean were um, scary. I wanted to do the whole show, set it into the Empire State Building, and then I wanted to set it in the arm of the Statue of Liberty. Like, I was just going to try to release my mind into something non-literal that would get me away from yeah. a real Model T and all sorts of real, uh, literal scenery. And eventually, we and I knew it had to be vertical. I just kept seeing the show in a vertical manner. And so after six months of meetings with Derek, we finally landed on our design. I don't know how many people saw. Oh, great. Yeah, so we came up with this four-tiered um, uh, unit environment that evoked a lot of the architecture of the period, including train stations and pavilions and lots of stuff, uh, the Morgan Library. And the horseshoe shape was very prominent in the early part of the 20th century. And so all the ideas sort of then exploded from that little thing went <laughs> and the laundry and the and the Atlantic City and all the stuff started to live really beautifully inside that environment. But for me it was always to start as if it was written today and not use any iconic staging, which I think Grazi's opening number with the three club clumps moving was very became a signature for the show, but I had to find a different uh, way to tell the story of those people, and for me it just came in, it came in the form of something else. And so I just opened my mind and my heart to new ideas that I learned from the script and from the book, and allowed myself to find a way to tell the story meaningfully to an audience living now. So with no look to the original production. I wasn't YouTubing. I wasn't, you know, saying, oh, okay, she did that, so I'm not going to do that. I, I just don't work that way. I have to have the text and the music speak to me, and the source material was phenomenal, and that meeting with Dr. O was uh, a linchpin for me. Because um, he said the, the book is naughty and impudent, and uh, that format of the novel allows it to be, and a musical is a sincere aesthetic event. And I was like, oh, I want that naughtiness. I want that impudence. I want to get that back into the story. And I don't want to treat it as precious. And I think when you're working on beloved material, sometimes you kind of go like this with it. I want it to go like that with it. I want it to grab it and dig into it and make it messy and get all that into it in terms of the relationships with uh, the characters. So that's what I did. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> and, you, and you did a beautiful yeah. job. Thank you. Beautiful job. Thank you. I miss it every day, I have to say. Um, well, I, the I do revivals all the time, too. Uh, the revival that I'm currently involved with... Um, you know, I came in and did the uh, London version about a year and a half ago at the Chocolate Factory, where people were avatars and it was virtual reality and Pippin was uh, a game. Uh, and Pippin saw his future through the internet. How did that work? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't. 
what I had known because I'm a stickler to those kind of things. So I gave up for what I knew and I went into this world of complete and absolute trust. There was a little voice back here going, you're going to get so screwed. They're going to kill you. And I just went, you know what? Been there. Uh, and I've survived that. So, you know, again, let's just go into the, and go into the fire. Um, and then going into the fire, I learned so much. Um, I call Mr. Fossey my father and Gwen Verdon my mother because they basically raised me and in the business. And my father would constantly talk about the circus. You know, but like he never did anything about the circus. And Gwen was always being, um, uh, was great friends with um, Harpo Marx and uh, Charlie Chaplin. So if you see, uh, if you see the, uh, the closet scene in Sweet Charity, that's all Harpo. Harpo came and gave all that info. And it's like, you go, no way! You know? So when you do that scene, you're like, you constantly do exactly what Harpo did. Um, I just realized that whatever this was talking to me here, that was not my job. My job was to be open, to give as much information and history and knowledge that I possibly could and bless it with love and hope that between Gypsy and Diane they could come up with what it is that they wanted. Um, at the end of our ART first time go, I got called into the office and I thought, well, this is where they go. Thank you so much. Here's one rose and leave. We know you owe, we know we owe you some money, but you know, that'll come. And I... I, Diane said, um, you have to stay. And I said, how? I mean, what? I mean, I'm, was I a bad consultant? I mean, well, how much more can I do? She said, no, I want, I, you need to come and you need to choreograph this. And I said, okay, but you can't do my dad's work in the show because if you did exactly what he did in the confines of our new concept, we do not do justice to him. And that would be, I heard these voices getting louder, I, that would be wrong because that was not his intent. And that's like jamming the name Fosse into something new that would not be his. And if you all know, I did Fosse, and I got jammed on that one by some ladies, you know, that, their issues with their lives. But, you know, I, and I respect them for that, too, because my dad and I were, had different lives together. But I knew that you couldn't do that. And I said, so, we'll do it. We'll do, we have to come up with a new phrase. And it's acrofroche, acrobatics, Fosse, and chat. And we'll put that all together. If you're in for that, when you can buy into that, sign me up but if you want me to recreate his work I have a problem with that and she says well can we use some of it and I said well interestingly enough Stephen Schwartz owns all the choreography oh. my father was a very smart man that was a, that was a question I was going to ask you is, yeah. is the choreography part of the intellectual property yes. of the script he loved writers E.L. Doctorow and Herbie Gardner mm -hmm. and Patty Chayefsky and you keep going right. all, all buddies yeah. and he decided to put all of his rights into the intellectual properties Therefore, the writers own and have the rights to say what happens. Whether you can use it or not use it, it's up to them to decide. Interestingly enough, with that known, both Stephen and Diane thought, you could just take and place and move and whatever. And so I thought, wow, you know, but that's, if you own it, you can paint the car any color you want. So I said to Stephen, I said, well, it would be like I were to take some of your music, insert Sondheim, Beat, beats, and then conti continue on with yours and still calling it Stephen Schwartz. Well, you can't do that. Aha. Uh -huh. got, he got it. And, and with Diane the same way, because it's not something that people yeah. know. They figure, we own the rights. We have complete rights to do anything we want with this. And I went, well, 
that's fine, except if you take out, let's see, you take out a number in, uh, 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 you take Manson Trio, and we decided to separate Manson Trio and throw something in the middle of it and still call it Manson Trio. I said, you're okay with that? Just that what you want to do? And I went, no, 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 because that wouldn't be Manson Trio. I mean, I give credit to that being really Mr. Fawcett, and it is. It's 100% Mr. Fawcett. I couldn't do it. Please. It's his. his. God love him. Uh, but everything else is a mishmash of ideas. There are things from many different shows that he did. There's some Chetty thrown in for Paste and Glue. Um, and then the acrobatics explode out of it or implode into it. But it had to be explained. You can't do that. No matter how you want to do that, do it, but don't call it what it is, which is something we all need to understand about people's rights well, of doing licensing. things. licensing. That's another symposium. That's but another, it it's another it's, symposium. But it is a right. great story about how you have to be able to trust your collaborators and how even though theater is a collaborative art, we don't all know what each the, the specifics Absolutely. of what each other does. And so you have to listen to your collaborators and take their advice. I mean, you know, take their advice. But you do have yeah. to listen to them. Sure, because you can get in and what I said on that in that day, I said, we need to go to legal. And you need to stop that poster that's being printed downstairs with his name on it because that's not what we're doing. And, and the family has every right then to come at you with everything you are now not going to have <laughs> because you're making money off a dead person. Sorry, but that's how that scenario would be. And that's inappropriate. But you approach but do we have to, I was just going to say, we have to acknowledge that Fosse's technique as a choreographer is as Chiquetti is to ballet. Yeah, I mean... I mean, yeah. don't you think, like, if you're going to learn Fosse style, you're going to learn how to do this and arch your back and put... You know, you're going to learn that technique. That is Fosse technique. Well, okay? it's, it's Fosse style, which he took from Jack Cole. Right. Because he wrote well, in... Yeah, yeah well, he wrote in dancing and would say to me forever... Someday they're going to find out. Yeah. <laughs> well, I never honestly, knew what that meant. But honestly, all choreographers in this room. Absolutely. Someday they're going to find out that you watched that Fred Astaire movie 35 times to figure out how he did that step. Absolutely. And so we're all guilty of it as we're Absolutely. developing our craft. But sure. when we become professionals, we have to take responsibility. And that's beautiful what Chet's saying because... The perception isn't as clear to uh, yeah, totally. us prior to understanding what you just said. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's amazing because when he wrote in, in, in Dancing, in Sing Sing, dedicated to Gwen and Jack, the latter would have hated it, for years I never got that. I always went along with it because, you know, you don't ask too many questions <laughs> because there are better questions to ask to get answers for. And then I started to recreate Mr. Cole's work and then receive, as you, as you do when you want to recreate something, people come out of the woodworks with films that they had and 8 millimeters and 16 millimeters and, <gasps> and I, have, I have Jack Cole dancing, Sing, 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 in Chicago with his company. Now I know why Mr. Fossey uh, said he would have hated it. Because it's really good and his is a bastardized version mm. of that. I'm not saying bad, but the concept, construction of, down to costumes, Mr. Cole. Uh, uh -huh. He never worked with Mr. Cole. But Gwen Verdon was the muse of both. Yeah. And so from there came all knowledge to Mr. Fossey. Wild, huh? Stay, stay tuned for that show. Yeah. <laughs> and I do want to point out that although you have done a lot of Fossey work, because you're kind of the expert on Fossey, mm. well, I mean... Uh, you can say that, sure. Okay, well, I'll say it. Okay, great, thank you. <laughs> uh, and you create, you know, you conceived and co-directed co Fossey, but you also do a lot of other revivals. Oh, yeah. And I assume your approach to those is a little bit different than your approach to a Fosse-inspired, or is it? 
Well, when I go and I do cabaret, um, when Freddie was when sorry when Fred Ebb was alive, I would always go to him to get zhuzh, as I call it, and and John Cander to get other kinds of zhuzh because they work separately but they work together, um, just to hear what they wanted, what what was left out because of time, period. You know, like in the 1960s, you know, we really didn't deal with homosexuality and we really didn't deal with what, the Holocaust really well at all. And, you know, they were very afraid of that, you know, uh, when, it, when it first opened. Um, but that was Ron Field. Yeah. Yeah. Fosse did the movie, not the stage. Yes. 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 And, and the story on the movie was no one wanted to do it. He was the last on the list. Huh. Totally last one because he had done Sweet Charity and he would admit it the biggest mistake of his life. He did it on stage as a Valentine's gift to Gwen. It was terrific. Um, when he went to do the movie, he did every possible lens he could use on everything. <laughs> and it's just, yes. And so um, everyone said no to do cabaret. They didn't want to be a part of because it was during a period of time that could we do this? What would we do with it? Do we do the stage version? But there was a contract that said that the movie had to be done within a period of time. They sent him with a dollar fifty, sent him to Germany. Gwen did the costumes, hysterical, um, and no one touched him. Freddie and, and John would fax things to him, but there was no inviting over. There was no money. Everyone thought he would bomb, but it was he was doing his art with no one on top of him yeah. so when he comes back it was the first time anyone had won the triple crown which was the Emmy for Liza with the Z cabaret for the uh, for the Oscar and then for Pippin a Tony Award <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it's just kind of interesting you know you, sometimes you have to get out and but if go you do too. Hello Dolly tell me you're not doing oh Colin Carroll <laughs> I wouldn't touch Hello Dolly do you know what I, I would touch Maine before I would touch Hello Dolly I know, no one will touch me. <laughs> no one will touch me. But, I mean, I, no, I would... I, I did Hello, Dolly, last year you with did? Vicki Lewis and Gary Beach. Oh, my Beach. gosh. That would be great. And it Beach. was Hysteric. a little bit of heaven, and I'm I made sure. the waiters gallop a tap. <laughs> and there you go. And I did not put Dolly in a red dress. Thank God. Because Vicki looked better in emerald green. Yes. <laughs> sure, yes, you're right. I have, a, I have a, two more questions that I want to ask before we get to the, to the, to the group questions. Um... In a new work, the company is discovering the piece together. So how do you work with a company of actors who have different experiences? Some have been in the piece before, some have never been in the piece, some were in the original production. How do you work with the company to get them on the same page? Well, I never cast anyone that did the original production. You know, I'm kidding. Um, they all want to be in it. They all email me and they want to be in it. And, and honestly, I wanted virgins. You know, I'm just going to say it. I wanted people to navigate those waters with me for the first time. And uh, honestly, in my revival, I only had one actor who had done the original production, uh, and he played uh, Booker T. Washington. And he came to me the first... I said to him at the audition, are you willing to take this journey with me? And he said yes. And then during the process, he reinforced that many times by coming over and just saying how excited he was about some of the choices that we were working on and the way it was being approached. So, you know, you want you want people in the room not to just, you know, pet you and fawn over you and think you're great, but you also want people who are going to trust you and you don't want to hear, well, when we did it last time, I get that from the writers. I get that. Well, you do to a certain degree. You, you don't get it, literally. I got it from Mr. Sondheim with all due respect when I did Merrily. Um, I got it a lot from him, actually. Um, but you, you know, you, it goes with the territory, you know. Um, but that's why I say I have to approach it like a new show and try not to burden the production with. And then we did this, and when we did it last time, and all, I just don't want to burden the production with that. It doesn't mean I won't hire you if you did it. Honestly, I'll look for people who haven't. But if you're the best person for the job and you've done seven productions of it, then come do it. My Cole House had done two productions of it before me. But I got him after he became a father. So it was a very different Cole House than when he did it when he was right out of college. He was now the father of three young boys. And that made a whole difference to yeah. the gravitas in the role. So, you know, it's just, you, you ca I cast the best people. 
I don't seek people who've done productions of it before, but if they have, then they have. But they have to, we have to make a pact that we're going to not sort of bring old stuff, allow just new stuff to happen in the room. Well, I only have one person in my show now that was a Fosse dancer. Um, Stephanie. When she was, Stephanie, when she was 19. And when I met her, she went, Miss Pope. <laughs> never let her live that down. Um, no, I mean, I don't know, because I'm the age that I am and that I kind of know a little bit about this man. Um, I became like a, the sage that everyone yeah, yeah. would come to, yeah. you know. And it gets complicated because certain things happen and you just, you know, you want to know why the hell is it called Manson Trio? Because mm. it's about Charles Manson. What? Yes, move on. And we can now go and look at Charles Manson and look at him. We can talk all about Charles Manson. That's your homework. But for me, getting people on, getting people on board was really being part of the collaborative team. Um, I was the sage who knew, and this is going to be the new that no one knows about. Um, and having Stephen there, who was hands-on all the time, the first time I've ever been in a production with Stephen that he is so happy. Mm. I mean, you know, Stephen has you know things that he is very meticulous with, but he was happy. That doesn't happen all the time. That didn't happen the first time. Right? No, Mr. Schwartz was thrown out of the theater. <laughs> The he first was, time around. The first time around, because he was 24 years old, he got up and told Mr. Fossey how to dance. As he would say, maybe not the best choice. <laughs> but he had such... <gasps> He'd written this in Carnegie Mellon. Come on, it's his. It's called Pippin Pippin. Uh, I saw Judith Light the other day, and she says, I was there when he did it. Uh, um, and it's, you know, it's... To get people together is, is for me, is... I never like to hire people who've done it before because I don't want to be reminded. My father said when we started to do, you know, Fosse, I think I told you, it's, I want anyone in there that he had worked with before. And I asked why. Just, I don't want people telling me what I did. Right. Mm -hmm. I want to do. When we did the revival of The Pajama Game in 1973 and uh, the Pippin was just opening, you know, he was on stage. Jerry, uh, Jerry um, Robbins was worried about why he didn't have a box around his name. And... And Mr. Fossey was on the other side going, I have no idea what I did in 1954, but if you'd like me to do something new. Because mm -hmm. he never wanted anything to be the way it was. And his daughter has come and, and seen the show at ART, and she's thrilled, thrilled by it. You know, she was brought up on, on Pippin. It, Pippin just has kind of this thing about it. No one knows what the show's about, but everyone loves it. You know, I mean, you tip people, oh my God, Pippin's coming back. Like, it hasn't been back in 41 years. What's it about? Oh, I love the music. Like, no one knows what the freaking story is all about, so, which I think is great about it. Um, the other question that I wanted to ask is, in the casting process, when you're casting a revival, do you find that you have a, it's an obstacle fighting against other people in the room, you know, whether it's the musical director or the producer or the casting director, about their conception of who this character is and therefore who they should be played by? Because you don't have that, I assume, or so much in new work. Well, for me, in this process that we had of nine months of auditioning, Fosse was three years of auditioning didn't think that that could ever happen, mm -hmm. but it did. Over 10,000 people for 37 jobs. Let's move that on to here. Um, we did nine months of exploration of trying to find out who, hmm. you know. I mean, we had an amazing icon named Ben Vereen. And, you know, people know Pippin from Ben Vereen, not really, you know, John Rubenstein so much. And so that was kind of hard in a sense. But then when everyone went... No one will replace Ben Vereen. No one's going to replace him. No one wants to replace him. Let him have what he had because no one can be him. Now where will we look? And we did, you know, I mean, you probably know the story. The Ben Vereen got into the show because, and the whole show was turned around and rewritten for Ben because Bob said one day, I don't know, I just worked with this guy on Sweet Charity, the movie, and I don't, I don't know what you can do with him. And brought him in, and then it all changed. So the original Pippin wasn't based so much around the leading player. Our leading player is someone that Diane had worked with in hair. She walked in, and the moment that Patina Miller walked into the room, you went. You don't really necessarily need to look any further because the charisma that that woman has, when she walks into a room, 
That's our leading player. That's someone that's going to take take on the job of what Ben had created when he was brought into the company. This woman is now going to create her own leading player. I mean, we looked at men and we looked at we looked at women, and you know, there's always a let's try to find a woman because that would be different. It, it wasn't that when we got to Bettina. It was like no. But now here she is, and we had a Pippin before, and we ha- and now we have Matthew. The Pippin that we had before was brilliant. He was terrific. Um, and sometimes you hire people that are brilliant and terrific, and they're not right. It not, has nothing to do with their talent. It's as we're evolving, we need to go somewhere else. And so you have to you know, grab onto your you-know-whats and make that decision and, and go forward because we're all supposed to be about the project. We're not supposed to be about you know, our emotional ties to people. Because that's not what our jobs are. Our jobs are to create, uh, what uh, to um, illustrate, create what what's on the written page and who's who, who's got the concept, you know. And for for us, the um, the process of trying to understand that there are there is dancing and acrobatics, and then we went no, there's dancing and acrobatics. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning, we didn't know that. I would be out in Outer Mongolia and I would fly in and to see a whole mess of people that they had all been seeing and I'd like go, okay, (laughs) great. Mm -hmm. And then we danced and I'm so sorry because like that won't work. So that's when we were in this this thing trying to go. But then that just went and it all kind of worked out. Now, someone asked me this morning, uh, AP, someone at AP asked me, said, so, you know, you're doing the tour, how will that be? And it's so much easier. Because yeah, now we know what, because we didn't know before. So, I don't know. I'm faced, like, I'm doing a production of Cabaret. I did it a couple years ago at Reprise, and, and, uh, and everyone's coming in thinking I'm doing Sam Mendes' version. Uh. So I, I, you know, I, I constantly am, I did a production of Chicago. I got invited to do a production of Chicago down in Flat Rock, and the first thing I said was, I'm not doing what's on Broadway right now. I wouldn't begin to be able to do that. I will do my own version if you will let me. And so the producer said yes. So I went back and read, looked at vaudeville and did it all sort of in a more vaudeville style with my own choreography in a 20s period invoked by the Charleston. So it was just a very different thing. All the girls that auditioned came in underwear. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you know, and, Thank you for and, that. And they were very disappointed when my audition wasn't bossy, bossy, bossy. It wasn't. And keep so, it outside. So they left unhappy. And I was like, fine, I don't want you in my show. So <laughs> if you're, that's what you want to do, go audition for the New York company and, and, and anyone who's doing that. But I'm going to do my own. I'm an interpretive person. I interpret. I don't create the words on the page, the music, the notes on the page. I interpret what those mean to me, filtered through this. And I have my own shortcomings as a dancer. Um, Fosse, I know, was bald, so he wore a hat. He hunched over a little bit, so everything stoops a little. I mean, this man called me when I was in college, and I'll give you that on the, uh, after, in, the, the, in, the, on the in the meet and greet afterwards. I'll tell you about Fosse calling me in Ann Arbor because um, I had written him a letter. But anyway. Um, but he answered. But he answered. <sighs> he answered. That's Thanks. why I answered. Um, so I have to, you know, what happens a lot with revivals and revivals of revivals of revivals is they get rebranded. And I like to think that Ragtime got rebranded in a, in a way. People, I've seen pictures of productions that look a lot like my production of Ragtime now. And I actually saw someone sent me a YouTube where they were doing the opening number in clumps and lines. So I was like, oh my God. I called Graziella and said, well, look at this, because this is crazy. So, um, you know, it was like both. We had, like, morphed into one. It was hilarious. It was really funny. I'd like some money. But uh, anyway, um, so, so I am up against, like, with Chicago and with Cabaret, I was up against the, the revivals of those yeah, shows. Yeah. And I literally have people coming in you know, wearing suspenders and no, pants and no shirt to audition for the MC. Well, I went back. I did have a long conversation with John Kander, and I decided to go to the 87 script, to the revivals, the first revival that Hal Prince directed. And I read a lot of stuff that Hal said about the show. So my 
my launching pad for Cabaret is not Sam Mendes' launching pad, and I would never do his version. He's a director that, that interpreted the material his way. For me to then say, I'm going to do my own version of it and have it look exactly like Sam Mendes would be just wrong and, and liable. So I'm not going to do that. So um, that's what I'm up against. I mean, Vicki Lewis in a green dress playing Hello, Dolly. That's a no-brainer for me. But then, uh, who's the guy that documents all the Hello, Dolly stuff? Um, Richard. Richard Skipper introduced me to, to Marge Champion and, by, and said, she didn't put Dolly in a red dress. And I saw Marge Champion's face like go white. And she said, why didn't you put her in a red dress? And I said, because that was your husband's idea. <laughs> Four snap parade. Seriously, do we need another Dolly in a red dress? So I... Didn't She's still alive wearing a red dress. Uh, <laughs> so it didn't work for my show and for my actor. I mean, Vicki Lewis just is sexy. and Anyway, we found a beautiful green dress and we put her in it. So. <laughs> and we told the story. You know, that's really the bottom line is we told it. What situations you might not encounter so much it's never happened to me. I've never done um, Crazy for You. That material's licensed. Um, I know West Side Story, you have to license the choreography. I've never worked on shows where the choreography was. I have had a discussion recently about doing a Fiddler on the Roof, and I actually would be honored to have a choreographer come and do the choreography for Fiddler. Because to me, there's certain shows, it's just like, I don't really want to fuck with it. It's like pretty good, you know? <laughs> so I'm not drawn to doing those shows. Um, and if it, and I think regionally at the theaters that I work at, if I were to do a fiddler on the roof, I'm not sure I would have to use the choreography. It was a, if it was a commercial first class production, I think you do. But I don't think Susie High School is using the original choreography. Or if she is, she's just copying it from the movie. Like I don't even know how. We're in discussions now at the union about how do you actually codify your choreography and get it into a format that could be licensed. That's complicated. Did you ever study lab annotation? Oh my god. Oh my god. I flunked that one. That was That doesn't look get like the anything. Video I camera. <laughs> yeah. Um, I would love for you guys to talk about your artistic license as far as um, the orchestration and uh, and structure, musical structure of the pieces. Are you ever? Do you ever feel like, wow, we should cut this number in the second act? It, it just weighs everything down and it's dated or something. Or do you spend a lot of time reorchestrating the quote unquote dance breaks or things like that because you just want to do it in a different direction? Well, I dance. Dance material from someone else doesn't work, so therefore you have your own dance material that you have. Um, cutting, depending on what you're doing. If you're doing a first-class production, then those people are all on board, and you can negotiate. Right. You know, this was a three and a half hour show. We can't do that, so we have to cut this down to to ten. And this number is only in this because the lady needed two numbers, you know, right. sweet charity. Um, but when it comes to dance music... Yeah, I've yeah, always, yeah. in all the revivals I've do done everywhere, the dance music is just too long. So I've tended to cut. I generally cut. And the licensing with Tams Whitmark and MTI and Sam French, they're aware. I mean, when you're just taking stuff, you're not rearranging. The only time I got permission to do something like that was when um, I did Jekyll and Hyde at Music Circus and I talked to Frank Wildhorn and he said I could do whatever I wanted. And I said, are you really? And he said, yeah. And I said, will you put that in writing? And he said, yeah. So then I could go to my producer at Music Circus yeah. and say, Frank said I could do some stuff. And I did do a little bit of rearranging. I also did that with the production of Hair 
But those guys were so stoned that they don't even know. Yeah, but I... But, they don't but, even know what they wrote. No, but, that was like... But Jim... They James, do hair. I just, James, do we do hair? I didn't do hair. James Rado came to that production and, and was delighted. But he's stoned, so it's like... He likes every production of hair. No, but you... But, but you really should. No, all, you have to honor. Yeah, you, you should go to, to those people. It. But if you have a like, I just did Music Man um, at Glimmerglass last summer, and because I was in an opera company, I was feeling a little frisky, and I said, "I'm going to move the time period." So, I moved it to 1946 because I could not do that shapoopy one more time. You going da 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 da. I mean, it's really hard not to do those steps, not to do the castle steps. And I just really, just as a choreographer, I had done it in college, I had done it at New York City Opera. I was like, I can't do that. No more shapoopy. No more shapoopy. So I swung it and turned it. I had I had um, Harold Hill come in in a zoot suit and teach everybody how to swing dance. And mm. it was really fun. And the only thing in the text that didn't work was Ought Five and after the fact, MTI sent somebody to see it and said, oh, I would have let you change it. But I, in order to get them to agree to let me change the time period, I said I wouldn't change a word of the text. I would just do it like you do an opera mm. in that environment and not change. And people had a great time, although they were like, well, why is he saying odd five? And uh, Mary and I just said, he's really a bad liar. That's all. <laughs> just, he's a really bad liar, and nobody in the town has figured it out but you. So, um, But we had secret. such a good time. The look of the show was so Edward Hopper inspired. Mm. We just were able to really sort of dig in and find a new vocabulary for the show, and it was really, really fun. But I got permission from the license. You know, we wrote to Tams Whitmark and or MTI, whoever, and I made a case for it. And they gave me permission, and there was a footnote in the program that said the, the period has been moved with permission of the publishers and only for this production. So that, you know, you can't, it's not your property. You have to honor the property. Dan, cutting dance music, I mean, you have to. Because I did My Fair Lady, and it came down at 11.05, and that night my dance captain and choreographer and I were like, okay, little little bit of luck and ch- get me to the church. Cut the dances. <laughs> you know, of course, in hindsight, I would, I'd be like, oh, gosh, we'd have cut Doolittle's scene down a little bit. We couldn't afford it to do that. But it was a fast and furious sort of after fact. So. No, you have to respect the material, always. Yeah. Hi. Can you talk about getting dance-based work produced, like Heat Wave and Frosty, or like Matthew Warren Swan? Like, how do you get that kind of work uh, commercially, commercially done? How do you get it commercially done? <laughs> Money. We've been talking about musicals. We've been talking about directors, writers, but we've yet to talk about a choreographer writing a libretto with no words that they right. can't go to the rights horizon to get discovered. So how do you do I, I do that all the time. Um, I don't know if it's successful, but I do do that all the time because I, I have an idea for a ballet, and there is a scenario, but there's no written word. Um, there's a union in this town, will be nameless, that every time I start something, they send someone over to see what I'm doing. And I always say, well, I'll take it to Agma. But, but until I figure it out, why are you, you know, right? So I started a nonprofit uh, dance company, a musical theater dance company, so that I had an umbrella in which I could, you know, raise money. That's amazing. Um, although I did get an NEA grant, which that even actually exists. Did you know that? Um, for 50000 to do the Jack Hole project, which was amazing because, like, they don't even have jazz on the radar. Um, but I think that what you have to do is you have to do things yourself. You have to create everything yourself. You have to get people who believe in what it is that you want to do. Getting space and stuff like that actually isn't as hard as you think. Uh, I would say, I'm not going to speak for Marsha, but, but I'm pretty sure this is true. If you come to anyone who's come before you and asks for help and, and sitting down with them, they will help you because they want set in that seat right there wanting answers to things and I think sometimes people think that we don't want to talk about it why 
I mean, if I leave this earth and haven't passed on what it is that I know, then why was I here? My dad was that way. And he never talked. Never wanted anything really videoed because he didn't want that to be the end all to end all. So when he's dead, it's kind of like now, but it's kind of hard. And he talks about certain things, but he doesn't, we don't know about it. We know it from generation, you know, my generation, I teach it to that generation. But that's the only way it's going to go. So when you want to create something that you have this idea about, there are ways to get it done. It may not be commercially out there. And here's what your first step is. The first step is to ask questions and then go to people who have done it and they will be more than happy to tell you how to do it or just do might it. even help you do it. Might even help you find a place to do it because there's places all over like our, our government that will help you, you know, as long as it's not, you know, the arts. It's got to be under something else, you know. Yeah, did you know that? You get money for stuff as long as it's not the art. <laughs> Something with the word contemporary in it. They love that. <laughs> so constructive. Yes, yeah, like absolutely. Delving into the history of you. They love that. <laughs> so, you know, we could, have a conver- we could have a conversation if you have an idea. And I could give you some ideas of where you could go. Okay, one more. You, um, you guys said you worked a lot internationally. How did you... I got a call to go to South Korea to work on cooking, which is like a, a Korean stomp. <laughs> I love that. In the kitchen with knives. It was really cool. It's a really cool show, and it's still running. Um, uh, because I had worked a lot with uh, some musicians. And I had sort of a musician, I went through a musician theater phase with the Red Clay Ramblers, who, who are a string band from North Carolina. We did a couple shows together. And this particular producer saw a presentation at one of the NAMPT, NIMPT, NAMPT, NIMPT, <laughs> one of those festivals. And I got a call, would I like to go to South Korea? It turned out Lynn Taylor Corbett had gone before me. And so they had, uh, they, they, and she had recommended me too. So that was sort of how I got that. And then after, while Ragtime was running, I was a guest speaker for the Music Theater Educators Alliance, and a gentleman from Denmark who runs a conservatory in a small town called Fredericia uh, emailed me about two months later and said, would you like to come to Denmark and direct, and made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And, <laughs> and so I did. I went to Denmark. It was beautiful. And the and the and then. Where else have I worked? Oh, England came about because I had done something here, and it was going to trans. It was they wanted to remount it in in, in <coughs> London or out uh, no Blackpool actually, kooky little seaside town. So, but it's it's connect it's connections. Things well, and you of course are in cahoots with the government. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in cahoots with the government, but I I started working in Europe because. Uh, of Sweet Charity. And Mr. Fossey passed away and then I was introduced to all of these different countries and all of these different places that wanted to do that production and therefore that ended up the next year or two years or three years and they, they book you five years in advance some places, especially in, in Asia and stuff like that. You know, it's like opera companies. They have a certain company. You have sometimes have to go, you don't get to audition, you get to have the company, mm. and you have to work with the company. That, that's, that's challenging, but fun. Well, thank you both so much. Yeah. Thank you for listening to SDCF Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members, and generous funding from the NEA, the New York State Council on the Arts, and the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council.